listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. We're on our last week of Faith for Exiles. Well done, everybody. Hands up if you've been here for the whole time. Just smattering of you. It's been a really interesting series and quite popular, and our podcasts have also shown the data that um, this is speaking into something. This is speaking into something that is real. It's articulating the day and age in which we are in, and not only doing so, but speaking a truckload of hope um, of what it means to be activated and awake as God's people in this era. And so this afternoon, it's my privilege to give you the final week five of Faith for Exiles. If you haven't been around, quick snapshot, it turns out that we live in an era where going to church, or most importantly, having a lived and active faith is not the norm. And the millennial age group, which is the 18 to 35 age group, uh, has Uh, kind of left the church a little bit, and there are only 8% of people that have grown up in the church, footnote, understand who God is or have some resemblance of his story and narrative and heart for the world that are actually living out their faith in real life, that what they believe matches how they live, and 70% have actually left either for good or still believe but don't turn up. Something's happened, something's come over the psyche or the heartbeat or the mindset of people and they're no longer activated in their faith. This is happening worldwide, not just in Western countries. The research uh, did nation specific and Australia is up there in some of the most confronting of the stats. We're worse than the States, not as bad as Austria but close. Um, And so well done for being here, well done for wanting to explore faith, well done for wanting to grow in your faith, and today it's the last topic. I was looking at this during the week in preparation and just wondering and looking at what does it mean to live this out in this day and age? What does it mean to have faith in, to have, to have faith whilst in exile? And as I've been looking at the topics that we've covered, we've covered intimacy with Jesus, we've covered having meaningful relationships, we've covered having cultural discernment. Last week we covered vocational discipleship. Hands up if you were here. Great. Um, Today I'm going to talk about something a little bit different. But what you realise as we look at this is that we are exploring all these things and we've explored the faith component. But do you know what it means to be an exile? Hands up if you feel like you've got a resemblance of what that could be. Ish. Exile's awful. Exile, a refugee's in exile and they're torn from their homeland. Uh, uh, There are many uh, um, exiles and refugees in our day and age, but uh, Eugene Peterson in his book, Run With The Horses, which is a must read for any of you, it's a modern day commentary on the book of Jeremiah, talks about this concept of exile and this is what he says. Exile is traumatic and terrifying. Our sense of who we are is very much determined by the place we are in and the people we are with. When that changes violently and abruptly, who are we? The accustomed ways we have of finding our worth and sensing our significance vanish. The first wave of emotion recedes and leaves us feeling worthless and meaningless. We don't fit anywhere. No one expects us to do anything. No one needs us. We are extra baggage. We aren't necessary. Inner experiences of exile take place even if we never move from the street on which we were brought up. 
We are exiled from the womb and begin life in strange and harsh, 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 sorry, harsh surroundings. We are exiled from our homes at an early age and find ourselves in the terrifying and demanding world of school. We are exiled from school and have to make our way the best we can into the world of work. We are exiled from our hometowns and have to find our way in new states and new cities. The exile experienced by the Hebrews is a dramatic instance of what we all experience simply by being alive in this world. In other words, other words, to be human is to be in exile. You and I are in exile. And repeatedly we find ourselves in circumstances where we are not at home. We are strangers in a strange land, to quote 1 Peter chapter 2. And so this concept of exile, which can feel far removed, particularly if you've only heard about it in regards to the Babylonian exile that happened ages ago, is something that you and I live out and know every day. And the word I like to use instead of exile, because I feel there's a bit of distance to that word, is the word homelessness. It's a word I think we relate to a lot, a lot easier. That feeling of being on the outside looking in, not quite there. It's a horrible feeling, it's a dislocating feeling, it's a disempowering feeling, it's a distressing feeling. Eugene, uh, sorry, Walter Brueggemann, who's a famous Old Testament theologian, who's an expert on exile, says exile is a deep sense of displacement. Failed hopes, anger, sadness, helplessness, permeate the sense of self, one's community and one's future. So I don't mean to be all depressing at the start of this like final, final week, but it's important to articulate a reality that every single human being goes through and every single human being experiences. It's something that has tracked through the whole narrative of our scriptures. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve are in the fullness of the presence of God, they are exiled from the garden when that forbidden fruit was eaten and they ate from the knowledge of the true tree of, true, of good and evil. They are exiled, not allowed to go back in, banished. We move on right along when we have the Israelites, a holy nation called, and they are then taken into exile by the Babylonian Empire, which is the motive we've been looking at a lot in this series. And that exile is an echo of the exile in Eden. But this time, God hasn't kicked them out. This time, God's left the building. Ezekiel talks about when they built the temple in Israel and Jerusalem, God said, your name will be God is here. And then later on in the chapters of Ezekiel, after he leaves, literally the building, he goes, and your name will be God is gone. That feeling of safety, that feeling of security, that feeling of warmth, that feeling of knowingness, that feeling of everything that makes things right in the world ripped out from underneath you. Then 1 Peter talks about it, when he talks about it in regards to the Roman Empire having taken over um, the worldview and the Judaism and the Gentiles of the time and saying you're exiles in a strange land. You're strangers in a strange land. You're not meant to be home here. So if you don't feel like you're at home, it's okay. And then he gives them instructions for how to live. And then we have us today. In this day and era where we kind of feel at home because there's a lot of external things to help us feel like that, but deep down there's this dislocation. And when we look at the layer of the metaphor even deeper, we realise that exile is very much the state of the church at the moment. Why? Because to live an active faith that professes not only a belief in God, but actually has a life shaped by that belief is very rare. 8% within the age group that uh, you are in. 
And so if I was to summarise this, which I'm going to do it in two questions, are you ready? The Bible is all about answering the questions, how did we end up here and is there any hope of getting back? How did we end up homeless and is there any hope of coming home? They are the two big questions that our word seeks to answer and does answer. Not sure the last time you felt like you are on the outside looking in. The little matchstick girl from Hans Christian Andersen is a beautiful allegory of that. Being on the outer when everyone else is on the inner, it could be within your family, it could be socially, it could be at work, it could be in church, but it is an awful feeling and it is not God's heart for you to feel that way. God's love and adoration for creation is that he has this movement of his love that refuses for this to be the story. He refuses that this be the condition of humanity. And so what he does throughout the Old Testament is he sends out messengers on mission to help people come home. And the way he does this, and it starts in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and then all the different verses, Bibles, I'm not talking about, all the different passages in the Old Testament is God calling this nation, Israel, to come home, to be with him and him to be with them. And not only that, he's so passionate about the rest of creation is that they're to get the light, they're to be witnesses to this light that has come to the darkness. And then in them encountering this light, they are then to go to the other nations that are living in the darkness and bring the message to them. We learnt last week that God doesn't work by himself. He always uses his humans, which says so much about who he is and it also says so much about your purpose and your intent and who you are. That's a large chunk of the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament is that instead of Israel coming to the nations with this message, whoa, hello, the nations come running to Israel and capture them in their message. Instead of Israel doing mission, being the sent out ones to the nations, the nations actually seduce Israel with their stories, their myths, and their delusions. It's quite heartbreaking to see. So Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, Malachi, Zephaniah are about this very thing. That God has set apart a remnant of a people for himself to do a new thing, to go out to the nations, to speak light to them, show them, like be witness to the light, but they keep getting caught up by the story of the nations. This book of Judges shows this over and over again. They kept doing right what was right in their own eyes. This cycle goes on and on. Why is this? I'm pretty sure, I've got a new microphone in case you didn't notice. It's tickling me. Why does this keep happening? Because I'm pretty sure not any generation, nor no one in Israel consciously didn't want that to be the case. Thinking about that this week, I, uh, at the age of 40, have gotten into Narnia. I know, I'm a late adopter, it's taken me a little while. Uh, But I've been reading The Silver Chair. Hands up if you know The Silver Chair. A good lot of you. Brilliant story. If you haven't read it, please do. And if you have read it, could be worth reading it again. I'm struck by this story. For those who aren't aware and for those who are, um, I'm going to retell a portion of it. But essentially, you have got Aslan, the beautiful, glorious lion representing Jesus. And he has sent Jill and Eustace on a mission. He's very good at sending people on mission. And this mission is to go to the underworld to find the lost Prince Rillian. Now, Prince Rillian, I could be reading between the lines. I'm happy to defer to the experts. 
I'm wondering, is either the kingdom of God and or someone said to me this morning, it's actually exiles. So Jill and Eustace are sent on this mission to go and find Prince Rillian, who they thought was dead, but was actually alive. He'd been abducted. They don't know where he is. And in going on this mission, Aslan gives them four clear instructions. They're really clear, and he gives them to them. They're signposts there to take with them as they go to the underworld, and the fourth one will lead them to the end of their mission. And when they're in the presence of Aslan, it's clean, it's crisp. The instructions are clear. There's clarity, there's communion, there's a pleasantness about it, there's a peace that overcomes them. But as they go on and they leave the presence of Aslan, they start to feel a little bit more confused. The air, once clear, is now thick. The clarity of their mission is now clouded. And it's quite sweet. You see Jill desperately trying to remember her four instructions. Every morning and every night, she goes through the four signposts given to her by Aslan. But day after day and uh, trek after trek, she gets more and more confused. And all of a sudden, her clear mission becomes full of uncertainty. So much so, she forgets the first three signs. Doesn't just forget them, but misses them. Hidden in plain sight, she walks all the way past them. And as a reader, you're reading this going, no, (laughs) you just missed that, and then, oh, you just missed that. But also, as a reader, you have a compassion for her because you can understand the fog, the confusion, and the darkness that comes over them. That is the reality of what they're walking through. As they go on and they've missed the first three signs, they go deeper and deeper, it goes darker and darker, there is no sun, there is no wind, there is no trees, there is no water, there is no sound of birds. All they have at best is the grey-green glow of a fake moon. And so by the light of a grey-green glow of a fake moon, they go about their mission, even though they'd failed the first three parts of that mission, desperate to find Prince Rillian. And they end up falling into the deepest part. And as they fall into that part, they're greeted by, which is really scary, like thousands of these earthmen. (laughs) And the reason it's scary is there's no light. So it's like they're in the darkness and all of a sudden they can make out the faces like thousands of earthmen. And then as they begin to talk to the earthmen about what it is they're doing, they're like, we've seen you before. We've seen people like you before. There's someone here like you. Let us take you to them. And as they go on, keeps getting darker and darker, they're confronted with all of their fears in this process, they meet a man who is living in the light of the warm glow of normal light. The first time they've seen it after days and days, weeks and weeks of darkness. And they get to know him, he's very friendly, and as they're talking with him, he tells them of this story he'd been on where he'd been under an enchantment And this beautiful lady, the green lady, had freed him from this enchantment and how much he is indebted to her for freeing him from this enchantment. He's so indebted to her that she wasn't there at the time because she was off digging tunnels through the earth so that he could become the king of a new land and he could rule and he could have the power over all of these people and how kind she was, how selfless she was to go and build that and dig dig the tunnels so he could become that king. But as their kind of time together goes on, he says, the problem, I've been freed from my enchantment, but the problem is, is that for one hour, 
of every day, the enchantment comes back over me. And the problem is, is that hour is soon. And so I want you to leave the room so that you do not have to witness me going through this trauma of the enchantment. And then as they have a little bit of dialogue, he kind of goes, oh, hang on a second. Usually the green lady is with me, so kind is she that she's the one who talks me through the pain. But she's not here because she's digging me a tunnel. Would you guys be the ones to be with me to help me push through the pain of this hour-long enchantment that I need to endure? I'm like, okay. So he gets tied up by the Earthman to this silver chair. And they're there to witness and help coach him through the trauma of this enchantment. And he makes them promise. He says, you have to promise me no matter what comes out of my mouth, you will not believe a word I'm saying. They're like, okay, we can promise that. Then he goes, no, 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 you have to promise. I'm going to be pretty convincing. And if you listen to the words that I'm saying, I'm going to do everything I can to convince you from letting me free from these binds, these being bound to the chair. You need to um, not listen to me. So they kind of gather in the corner and they make a pact and they go, no matter what happens, we're not going to listen to him, we're just going to like write it out. So as the enchantment starts to take over him, they notice that he starts to look different. In fact, he looks like a different person altogether. Like, this is interesting, wow, such is the enchantment. And then he starts to say some pretty convincing things. I'm from Narnia and I've been kept captive and you have to free me. Oh. No, 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 you don't understand. The green lady is a wicked witch and she's taken me under her spell and she has put me under another, an enchantment and I need to be freed from this and you're the only people who can free me. What is the chance that I can be freed without her being here, that you're here from Narnia to free me? Would you please free me? They have a little conference. No, 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 we can't, we mustn't. We promised that we would never free. No matter what he said, he told us he was going to be convincing because if we free him, he's going to become a snake and he's going to eat us all. And then he says, in the name of Aslan, I beseech you to free me. It was the fourth instruction. And so they're left in this space of going, whoa, which one's the enchanted guy? The first guy or the second guy? We don't know what to do because now he's given us the fourth sign, the fourth symbol to let us free in the name of Aslan. What do we do now? Because we've, we've failed the first three. How do we fail this last one? And Jill says, this great quote, Jill says, I wish we knew what to do. <laughs> and a character called Puddle Glum, very Narnian, says, we do know what to do. He says, no matter what happens, we have to obey this sign. And so they break him free, they cut off the binds and the bonds of the silver chair that he's bound to, and there they meet Prince Rillian, the very person that they were sent to rescue. Which one was the right enchantment to be presented with in the first time? Was it the first guy in his convincing time? Was it like they didn't know? But they had to listen to the instructions of the clarity when it came when Aslan first gave them their mission. And so I've been struck by this as I've been sitting in the world of Narnia. I'm struck by the enchantment. And I realise that there's an enchantment over our land. What do you think it is? Have a chat to the person next to you. What is the enchantment over the land?
Okay. Does anyone know? Fear. Freedom. Notion of freedom. Yeah. Any others? Irrelevance. Interesting. I'm going to pose that none of us know because an enchantment means we don't know. But I'm going to draw upon the research of Dave Kinnaman and Mark Matlock and uh, pose to you a very gentle, subtle proposal. And it's in, like, ultra-thin Helvetica. (laughs) Because I'm not talking about the obvious entitlement, where we all think we should be famous and have the paparazzi follow us, or that we should all be rich and we should all um, have the, the life served up to us. You guys have been at Red for way too long to still believe those myths, right? I'm talking about a a subtle undercurrent entitlement that is insidious in his book, The Entitlement Cure, John Townsend calls it the pocket entitlement, where entitlement is just a global, it's the air we breathe, we all have our pocket entitlement. Entitlement means an unrealistic, unmerited or inappropriate expectation of favourable conditions and favourable treatment at the hands of others. It's a little bit like the mantra, I want it and I want it now and if I don't get it, it's your fault. And unfortunately, that belief, that myth, that enchantment, is more part of the air that we, believe, that we breathe than we realise. Uh, Jean Twenge wrote a book about this, and she said that the millennial uh, demographic are the ones to which entitlement, although it's been as old as Adam and Eve, when it looked pleasing to the eye, <laughs> to do such and such, to be like God, to become like God, human condition, something has happened within the value system and the world that we live in that means it has absolutely skyrocketed for those who are born in the 80s or 90s. Hands up if you were born in the 80s or 90s. Well, just all of you, except for Sue and Grant. (laughs) (laughs) And Mark and Trudy and Sarah. So, (laughs) so we're going to have a panel on entitlement, so if anyone wants to come up and join And what she reveals in her research is that, yep, there's the weird, like, really obvious stuff with people who are the full-blown narcissists. But what we have is that there's enough narcissism going around in the air we breathe to get everyone wet. And that it's actually now affecting all generations, and it's also affecting all cultures where it used to be just uh, contained uh, to the Western world. And I'm not going to go into much more detail other than that, other than to lift the lid, that your sense of rights and what I think I deserve, my sense of justice, what I should get out of life and how it should happen, is actually more an enchantment designed to distract me and create confusion and fog over the mission of what God has asked of me than it is an actual true reality designed to serve up the life that you want. I don't know what it is for you. It could be to do with work, it could be to do with relationships, it could, could be to do um, with anything from vacations and being having the right to have the vacation you want. It's irrelevant what it is because it's an issue of the heart which says I'm God and he's not and I know how to live life the best. So when Eve saw that the fruit was appealing to her eyes. In Judges, 
where everyone did what was right in their eyes. Right, all the way down to Timothy and into Peter, people being seduced by myths and wanting to do it their own way. We have here an entitlement that is robbing us from the very mission that God has got for us. In the story I just told you, there is this wonderful character, Paddle Glum. He was the one who had the courage and the guts to not know what was going to happen, but be the one to say to Jill, I think we do know what to do. I just wish we knew what to do. I think we do know what to do. And as the story goes on, Prince Rillian gets freed, and instantly the green lady slash dash wicked witch is in her presence. It's like she's just morphed back into the room and she's not happy because her whole plan has been um, un unfailed. And you think she'd get angry and then all hell will break loose, but instead she starts to play guitar. She starts to strum and she starts to speak with her melodious voice and she starts to send a grey gas <laughs> into the atmosphere. And that grey gas causes a fogginess, it causes an exhaustion, it causes a tiredness. And Jill and her, her friend used to start to kind of get sleepy, puddle gums like this. He's determined not to get asleep. And she starts going, what's going on here? And they start to kind of try to witness to her and they talk about this other land called Narnia and a line called Aslan and a land where there is sun and there is a moon, a land where there is the wind, where there's the trees and the, and the birds and you've got to understand they're deep, deep down in the dark where there's no nature. And that this nature is an echo of a bigger story and this nature is an echo of transcendence and it's a reflection of a God that is beyond understanding but whom we can see the invisible qualities in through this creation. And she starts to twist their thinking and starts to cause doubt. And she's able to do it because of the gas and the melody that she's singing. And she starts to go, how do you know that's just not your desires making that up? There's no such thing as a lion. You've just seen a cat. And your desire has wanted it to be a lion, and so you've decided that there's a lion. There is no such thing as a sun. You've been down here. There is no sun in this land. There is only this grey, grey-blue fake moonlight. There's no such thing as a sun. You've just seen a lamp and you want there to be a sun. And she goes on and on, dismantling anything that could bring transcendence. And they start to fall for it again because the enchantment is powerful. But Paddleglum is the only one who goes, no, <laughs> I'm not putting up with this. And in an interaction with her, he goes on to say this, Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all these things. Trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself, suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in, in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. We may be making this up, but our made up world licks your real world hollow. And I'm on, Aslan, I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. And he's decided that he's gonna live as if the greater things are real, whether or not he can prove it. Because he's decided that the greater things that he believes pack more meaning, more weight, more sense of home than any of the fake moonlight that he's trying to pretend to be. 
And so he's deciding that even though he doesn't really know and he's only going by faith, that he is going to go by what Aslan told him and by the echo of that voice in his heart, despite what he sees around him, despite the fog that comes over him, despite the music that is played and despite the melodious voice of this woman full of seduction. And in his declaration of faith, the wicked witch slash dash green lady dissolves and turns into the serpent from the garden of, the Adam, of Adam and Eve. And her true colours shone, or are revealed and shone through. We live in a day and age where there are a lot of grey, blue lights around. People are as sad as they are busy. People are desperate for meaning and yet struggling to find it. People don't like that this is the story, they just don't know what else is there. I remember being in a pub in Barcelona with my brother and a bunch of youth hostel people he'd made friends with. <laughs> it's a big story there. I wanted to go to the flamenco dances, but no. <laughs> and we end up in the pub instead and they pull their chairs around me and they're being polite and they're just like, oh, so what do you do? And I just said, ah, oh, this is before we were at church. I said, ah, oh, look at worldview and faith and culture and what shape, shapes belief, you know. Um, and I left it at that because usually people are just being polite and instantly they pull their chairs in. So what is it? Like, what is it for us? And so I start to talk about a few things. Entitlement did happen to be one of them. And a few other things. Consumers, just standard red stuff that you've all heard too many times. And they're there, and they're, they're, like, they're hungry, and they're like, oh, that is so true. Oh, that is so true, yes. Wow, no one's ever talked about it like that before. And something's being articulated for them that they desperately needed articulated because they're living by that myth, and they're living by that script, and it's leaving them hollow and empty. It's like salt water. The more you drink it, the more thirstier you are, and so you just keep drinking it a little bit like a Facebook news feed. And then one guy stands up and he goes, comment of the night, it's never left me, 12 years later. Yeah, but what else is there? But enchantment has come, has, come, come, has, come over the land, has come over the land. And the myth and the stories of the nations has come over the church. And it's after the hearts and minds of the people of Aslan who are sent on mission. And they're desperate for an alternative, but we're falling for their myth. Something insidious is going on here because the stakes are high. That your role in this earth at this time is more than just going through the treadmill of life and going through the status quo and living a script that is set by the nations that actually isn't necessarily going anywhere. And I think we all know it, but we don't know how to go about it. There's this book here, which I recommend to you. She's not a Christian as far as I know, called Trick Mirror. She's 30 years old. She's a journalist from the States. She writes for The New Yorker. And they're essays about how, how bereft she feels that this life she's been promised and this life she's been offered has ended up hollow. And she calls it, the, she even calls it the fire of hell. And she goes, but there's no way out. How are we meant to get out of this? And it's an excellent expose on the culture that we live in and the seduction that we find ourselves in. And so what I would say, potentially, is a little bit the spirit of the age that we're in, is this. 
I don't believe in God, but I miss him. A number of years ago, Alain de Paton, the philosopher and writer, actually wrote a book, Religion for Atheists. And his argument was is that religion has such a potent and powerful part to play in the health of a community and a society when it comes to meaning, when it comes to purpose, when it comes to belonging, when it comes to the things outside of ourselves, which is the opposite to entitlement. Entitlement's everything about the inner self. And he argues that we need to actually create religion again, but without God. Because religion is proven to bring the very things that we're looking for, but we don't have. And yet maybe, perhaps where we're at now, I think we're beyond that, that was only a couple of years ago, five years ago. I don't believe in God, but I want to find him. Is more the mantra of the people out there. And so the final finding within the research, number five, of what it is that marks the lives and the practices of resilient disciples in Australia is this one. Curb entitlement and self-centered tendencies by engaging in counter-cultural mission. And the finding and the research was unequivocal, that those who aren't living a life like this, trying to find meaning, identity, purpose, hope, relationships and love by the inner self and the inner drive of self, but are actually looking outward, have more meaning, have more freedom and have a richer, more vibrant faith. Jesus spoke about this, it's better to give than to receive, that if anyone wants to find their life, they've got to lose it to find their life, in other words. To curb entitlement and self-centered tendencies by engaging in countercultural mission. The devil has played a trick on us. And the trick is, is that our life is about us, our faith is about us, what we see, what we think, what we want. But it's actually the lie of the nations just dressed up in Jesus' clothing. But this nation, or the nations, to use the metaphor, is desperate actually for the message. And to tell you a couple of stories to prove that point, I don't know ever in the history of Red, I've been here for 10 years, have we had more people walking in off the street, having never gone to church before? Because that morning they've woken up and they've gone, I'm so lost and I have got no answers, I'm going to just go to church. They're walking in. There are people that others are bumping into in the, in the park and feeling a prompting from the Holy Spirit to go and chat to them and then before you know it, they've rocked up and they're here now at church. I had a chat to one of them um, this morning after this morning's service. But the world will tell you that God is dead and people don't, aren't interested. But that's just the enchantment that is speaking to stop us from actually engaging with some kind of witness. And so God, every generation, goes, who's going to be my witnesses? Who are going to be my messengers? Who are going to be the ones who are going to go and be a light into the dark places? And he's doing it again now. The Holy Spirit is drawing people, not just in the church, he's drawing people home because we're homeless and we're desperate to have that warmth and being known and the feeling of connection with the Creator once again. And so this message is actually quite simple. I'm going to do a puddle glum. He told us what to do. <laughs> Stop looking at the world to show you how to live. Come home. Because they're actually looking at you to show them how to live. 
And you don't have to have any pressure with that. You have the Holy Spirit that brings the clarity, that brings the presence, that brings the communion, that brings the mission, that actually is the God of mission, who is intent that his children are back at the table. I'm going to invite you to stand as I pray over us. Jesus, we thank you that you're not a historical figure that once lived, but that you are still alive. And I thank you that everyone in this room is here as a testament to that. But I thank you that you're not content that we stay where we're at, that you're not content that the world that is desperate and crying out for meaning and crying out for purpose and crying out for an alternative, that are desperate to have someone tell them that there is something else, that Jesus, you're at work in those people. And so as we gather as your children right now to worship you, I ask and pray that Holy Spirit that is the presence and the revelation, that is the peace, that is the clarity, that is the anointing, that is the hope, that is the healer, that is the counsellor, the Holy Spirit, you would be released amongst us to do what only you can do. Show us and remind us what it means to be home and show us what it means to live a life that is already anchored in a home. In the name of Jesus, we pray.